With the 2020 census, population shifts have brought redistricting, I cannot say that today, for election precincts. Frank Rainwater, Executive Director of the South Carolina Revenue a Physical Affairs Office is here to explain the link between the redistricting and your budget. <laughs> I am so glad to introduce you, Frank. Right. Welcome. Thank Welcome. Thank Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Good afternoon. Uh, Appreciate having you here, and uh, as we get to talk about economics, I know I have the true and dedicated here because y'all really want to talk about quadratic formulas and the coefficient exponential link between uh, consumption and spending, right? That, that, that's what you're interested in. Thank you. All right, cool. Um, I want to talk about a couple of things. I'm going to talk about the economy first. And then Todd's going to give me the high sign halfway through to switch to redistricting because that's probably a little bit more in in interesting uh, for you. But first, I'd like to say thank you. I have a quote here by John Kenneth Galbraith that economics is extremely useful as a form of employment for economists. So I appreciate the love you're sharing with us today and, and help me to keep my vocation uh, active here and uh, productive. So to start with, I want to tell you a little bit about what's going on in the state's economy and ultimately how that's going to relate back to the local governments here. Uh, as part of our job, we, we are the staff and we're the agency for the Board of Economic Advisors. We do the revenue forecasting for the state. We share this with the General Assembly who, does, who works on the budget, and we try to share this with local governments as well. So I'd like to kind of show you what we're, what we're talking about. I should have began, there, I, I know there's a lot going on here in a um, short amount of time, but there's, th but there's about three or four takeaways, maybe three takeaways. If you get nothing else out of my presentation, there are three main things I want you to remember from, this, from today. Uh, first is that even though we have seemed to have passed the, the worst of the pandemic, the, pandem the pandemic is behind us, I do not think we have bottomed out on the revenue cycle yet. Uh, as I'll explain, we had an artificial high in our revenue this past year. And I really think the worst on the revenue side is yet to come. So just because we may have the mandates off and maybe because tourism is opening up and we're coming back and tourism is doing better, uh, the economy is opening up and tourism is doing better, don't think we're out of the woods yet as far as the revenue. And especially those of you who rely on sales tax uh, as part of your budgets, we'll talk about that. That's on the economy and it's on the budget. On the redistricting side, uh, a couple of different issues. Uh, it's a little bright in here, but how many of you have participated in a redistricting cycle before in your local government? Uh, I don't see many hands. Um, because of the Supreme Court cases in this past decade, especially as the result of um, uh, the Section 5 of uh, the Preclearance Act being invalidated or put on hold, basically, the emphasis has changed. It's been good, both, both good and bad in a way, not having to go through preclearance uh, under the old uh, voting rights, excuse me, under the old operations. South Carolina was one of the states subject to the Voting Rights Act. And anytime a government changed its election procedures or election districts, they had to get preclearance from the federal government. 
when we did that, that kind of gave you a lot of confidence that you couldn't get sued or that if somebody tried to sue you, we could always say, well, the federal government pre-cleared it, it's okay. Um, so that was kind of a, a, a protection measure there. Since Section 5 has basically been validated or, or the coverage requirements been invalidated, the burden has now shifted to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and that puts a lot more of the burden on you as local government officials to do two things. One, we've got to go through a lot more statistics and analysis. We have to show you or you have to understand really what's going on in your voting areas. And then you have to make a lot of decisions up front. You have to be a lot more transparent about it. In the counties and cities we're working with, we're gonna provide a report to highlight these issues with you. But you're gonna be highly suspect if you go in the back room and draw out a plan and just present the plan and the public doesn't get to see it, and here's our new plan. If you do that without having a lot of voter education, a lot of public discussion, uh, that's gonna be suspect. If you, if you get sued uh, on that, you're gonna kind of be suspect. It's like, well, why did, really, why did you do this? How did you come up with it? So we'll talk more about that in detail, but those are the things to remember uh, what's going on. So what I wanna show you here, this graph represents our general fund revenue. Uh, over the past several months, uh, the last three and a half years, or two and a half years, I should say. And you can see what has happened, look at that dark blue line, how it's jumped at the end. Um, that is the result of this past quarter and after this federal stimulus money has started hit our economy. If you can just kind of represent from the start of that graph to right before it peaked, it was almost a, a pretty much a linear trend, it was going along. But we see that spike there. And that was because of all the federal stimulus money that came in. We're think on the state level, we're at an artificial high because of that stimulus money. There was uh, uh, so much money, um, well, th there was just a lot of money pumped into the state the first half of this fiscal year. That money is not gonna reappear next year. It is not coming back to our state. The money that the feds pumped in our economy this year not only replaced our current level of activity, our normal level of activity, it increased it. So when our economy starts to return, we're gonna to return to our normal level. We can't return to this artificial high. So those of you who have sales tax revenue, we'll talk about this again in a minute. We got two years worth of growth in sales tax this year. I don't see how we're gonna grow on top of that. I expect that we expect sales tax revenue to decline next year because of this artificial high we're, we're on. So when you're budgeting and planning, keep that in mind. How states manage shortfalls, South Carolina was in relatively good shape. This bar graph shows how different states reacted to the economy, uh, excuse me, how they had to react to the downturn in the economy last year. States had to do a lot of things. Some had to do layoffs, some had to do budget cuts, some had to do hiring freeze, some had to reserve, uh, use reserve funds in a variety of measures. Uh, you see there in those gray areas, those are how many states took, took different measures. The only thing South Carolina had to do was highlighted in the blue. We just had to borrow some excess funds, not our reserve funds, but some of our surplus funds to help pay for COVID. So unlike New York, unlike California, unlike a lot of other states, we got through this very well. And the primary reason we got through it was the timing of COVID. COVID hit right before the state um, adopted a budget for the next fiscal year. 
but long enough into the fiscal year to help have a good economy to generate a surplus. Had COVID hit us six months earlier, we would have not have had the budget cushion to absorb it last year. If COVID would have hit three or four months later, after the General Assembly passed a budget, they would have passed an artificially high budget and then we would be dealing with budget cuts after the year. So if there's any silver lining in COVID last year, it was just the timing on this, um, which was kind of beneficial. But just to let you know, South Carolina, we came out of it much better than a lot of other states. So even though we've gotten out of it, we still got some things to come. Uh, I like this quote by Herbert Hoover, blessed are the young for they shall inherit the national debt. <laughs> and so uh, I don't know what your term is. Um, I do not plan to be here and talk about the 2030 census, but the closer we get to that in the next decade, uh, you or your predecessors are gonna have some interesting challenges, and especially people at the state level. This is the national debt projections by the, uh, by the I think it's CBO, Congressional Budget Office, and this shows our debt as a percentage of our economy. And you see how high it was during, uh, on the left side, World War I, then the Great Depression, and then, and then World War II. But our economy started recovering, we started paying down that debt. But you see how it started to increase and creep up. It increased during the Great Recession, um, then it increased during the pandemic. And now, but if you see that line, look how it continues to grow. We're not paying that down. And this growth does not include this latest stimulus rounds in that. Uh, I'm worried, you know, now this is going out to 2050, but at some point debt becomes a serious issue. Um, and this graph is also understated. What it's saying here in 2050, our debt's gonna be twice the amount of economic activity in the state, in this country. That's a little scary and I worry about it being sustainable, but that is, that's not all our debt. This is the debt held by you and me when we buy government bonds, or this is the debt that's bought by foreign governments who want to invest in the U.S. This does not include the additional debt where the government borrows from itself. In addition to that, we've got some other structural problems. This is Social Security. Social Security is expected to run out of money, excuse me, run out of, run out of this trust fund in 2035. What does that mean? Social Security, you know, is not as a pay-as-you-go basis. Uh, there's taxes that are collected, and then there are benefits that are paid out. And the benefits exceed the amount of money coming in. That deficit is made up because trust fund has built up over time where there used to be more money uh, coming in than money going out, and there was a balance. That balance is being eaten away. And the, if Congress does nothing about that, the automatic rule is in 2035, when Social Security runs out of money, Social Security benefits get, get, 25, get cut 25%. I don't think Congress is gonna let Social Security get cut by 25%. But how are they gonna pay for it? Are they gonna continue to run up the deficit and make this graph higher? Or are they gonna raise taxes? What, what's going to happen? So that is, this is an example of where the problem is being kicked down the road, but in 2035, we got a serious issue to deal with. Um, so again, how, how's this economy gonna sustain itself? How's government gonna keep funding some of the promises it's made? 
In addition to this, I don't have it in here, uh, Medicare. Medicare has a similar problem. Medicare is expected to run out of money in about 2026 or 2027. And at that point, Congress has to make another decision. Do you cut benefits or do you raise taxes to pay for that? So we've got, in addition to the normal trend there from the government programs and lower revenue, we've got some major problems here with the changing dynamics. So I just make you aware of that as local leaders that the fiscal reality getting close to this next decade and in the next, in the, into the uh, 2030s is gonna be quite interesting here. So, that being said, I'd like to quote Paul, Paul, quote Paul Samuelson that economics has never been a science and is less now than a few years ago. So, we have these general indicators, but during this past recession, uh, the pandemic here, all our relationships have broken. Everything that we knew in the past how to judge the economy and make predictions, that has been changed. We talk about the number of unemployed here, but this chart shows you the number of job openings versus the number of unemployed. And you see there in the gray area during the Great Recession a few years ago, how high, when the recession hit, how high the number of, uh, how that relationship changed. But after we recovered from the Great Recession, we had more and more job openings and less unemployed. And then you see that spike there when the economy had to shut down, that relationship spike. But look at it now. The number of unemployed per job opening is less than one. It is lower now than the great boom we had prior to the recession. But yet we have so many people unemployed. There's a mismatch in our job force. There's a, in job skills and job demands. The job demands where the jobs are, we don't have the people with the right skills. And that's more of a systemic long-term problem. So when we see the economy starting to turn around and we're talking about job openings, I'm still not sure where the people are gonna come from to fill some of these openings. Our unemployment, this chart shows you our unemployment levels on a monthly basis for the past couple years. You see the gray area, how far we fell, but you see it's been a slow recovery since then. Um, it's gonna take us a couple years to get back to that job level, but that mix is going to change as well. So even though we may be past the pandemic, we don't see us returning to the prior level of employment we had pre-pandemic for another year or so. It's still a ways off. This chart is showing how well all the states have done. And again, it shows that South Carolina has performed better than most of the nation. This shows the percent of jobs that have been recovered since the pandemic started. And we've got a couple of states over there on the left um, let's see, Idaho, Utah, South Dakota, the, some of those oil states, they've done very well. Uh, South Carolina is there in that black bar, and we're about the eighth best state as far as job, jobs recovery. The two darker blues, those are our neighboring states of North Carolina and Georgia, we're doing much better. But you see you've got some states there at the far end, um, Hawaii, New Mexico, Louisiana, uh, they're still suffering. They've lost a lot of jobs. So when you hear on the news about how the economy is going great in other states, and when California recovers and starts to expand, not sure that's really going to benefit us. We're kind of going at our own pace here. So again, what you hear on the news may not be ind indicative of really what's going on in the economy. Um, sake of time, let's just talk about federal stimulus a little bit. Um, Mick Jagger, if you start me up, if you start me up, I'll never stop. I think that was kind of the thought on what the stimulus funds would do. And I put Mick Jagger in here because he's an economist. How many people knew that? 
Mick Jagger went to the London School of Economics. And I guess he was such a bright student, he finally feel, realized he was going to be much more profitable going into business than studying economics. So, um, but he's one of the other two economists we have in here. So, this is what I talked about, how the st federal stimulus money boosted our economy. Uh, this is measure of personal income. Personal income is the amount of money that people have in this state, whether it be from wages, whether it be from retirement, whether it be from Social Security, whether it be from stocks, dividends, and interest. But it's a measure of how much wealth we have in this state. And you see there on the left, it was pretty much a straight line, a trend line, until the pandemic hit and Congress passed the first um, stimulus payment a year ago um, in the spring, and you saw that boost. And that's what I was talking about earlier, that the stimulus payments not only replaced the lost, in the, the lost revenue in the economy, it added to it. Had Congress not added money, you would have seen our personal income line drop. And so that's what happened in that second quarter when that first payment came up, it boosted our income, and then it started to fall back to a more of that traditional long-term trend. But look at that second and third round of stimulus, those that came out in December and then after President Biden was elected the March. That was such a huge amount of money pumped into this state. We've received taxes on it, we've received sales taxes, but we're not gonna continue from that level. Going forward, we're gonna fall back to that long-term trend. Uh, so even though your, your government, your local government, you may have a lot of sales tax revenue, I'm gonna be highly suspect if you receive near that same level this fiscal year and maybe next, uh, the current fiscal year and the following. So all that being said, uh, it is our best guess, but as John Kenneth Galbraith said, the only function of economic forecasting is to make astrology look respectable. So, so we, get, we get teased at about using a crystal ball, you know, Ouija boards, dart boards, or whatever, but this is what we do truly believe and, and kind of emphasize have been sharing that. Um, just as an aside here, this is the education lottery. Our lottery had a great year this year. The year is not over. We still have one more month to report, I think. But you see the uh, solid bars represent the actual and the stripe bars represent the projections for this year and next year. And you see that spike we have in the lottery, that next to last graph for the current, for last fiscal year now, fiscal 21. Again, a lot of stimulus money supported the lottery. You know, we could almost track it by the month and the week that when those stimulus checks went out and when the lottery benefited. The lottery also benefited because there was no competition for those dollars. Movie theaters were closed. Uh, other groups, social activities were closed. What else were people gonna spend their money on? Um, that was a form of entertainment, a form for recreation. Uh, the lottery's helping uh, to support a lot of other programs and scholarships this year, but this is what we've told the General Assembly, it's gonna fall back next year. So be careful on how you budget your money or surplus from this year, because even though the economy may be getting better and unemployment's reducing and, and people opening up, I don't think it can replace the impact of the stimulus money we got this year. Now, we're not so specific. We don't know exactly when that trend or when that change is going to occur, but it's going to happen. We're gonna start seeing a drop in their revenue even though the economy is doing better. Just to kind of highlight that point one more time, this is retail sales. And you see the long-term trend there that sales tax normally follows a linear growth. It's a pretty straight line growth. But you see what happened at the very right we're in a recession and sales tax levels spike. This is not percentages, these are actual levels of spending. Uh, 
Again, that's due to the stimulus. That's not a new high, or that's not a new base. It is a new high, but it's not a new base. We're gonna fall back to that long-term growth. So I just can't emphasize enough, be careful when budgeting your sales tax revenue and forecasting out for the current year and next fiscal year. Um, one unique thing we've had about wages here um, is that even though we had a recession and we're down 15% uh, of the jobs we normally have this time of the year, our withholdings are going up. There are more people, uh, there's a higher payroll going on. And why is that? Because there's a distinct difference there between the job classifications. The red line represents the higher wage jobs. The um, green line represents the medium wage job and the blue represents the lower wage jobs as a percent change. High wage jobs were in demand this past year. They pay income taxes. Low wage jobs don't pay income taxes. High wage, look at what we had to do. You had to have more computers. We had to have more internet, I mean, talk about the internet. You know, we had people with technical skills. Uh, certainly the hospitals and doctors were overwhelmed, demand for those resources. This pandemic was different. Even though we lost jobs, it was so concentrated in the, in the hospitality sector, the lower wage jobs, the hotels and the restaurants, the tourism areas, those were greatly impacted. But our technical skill jobs benefited from this. So again, it's a change here, what's going on. As the economy returns, uh, we expect some of that demand on the, the high-skilled jobs to be reduced, but the revenue we're going to get replaced by those low-skilled jobs is just not going to be the same. So another reason we're a little pessimistic on the revenue going out. About to conclude here on the revenue side, if you're not familiar with the state budget, but this shows you how the state budget is divided. Um, we have the major categories. Rather than agencies, I look at type of expenditures. And I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's always educational to the members of the General Assembly. Uh, that big blue, line, big, big blue column, I should say, in the middle there is uh, uh, reimbursements or, or aid to subdivisions. 40% of the state budget is going back to our local subdivisions. Now, granted, most of that's schools, but it's local subdivisions. 40% uh, is going directly back to our cities, our counties, our school districts. Uh, the next largest part is wages and salaries, but skip over that next, that uh, third one, that is case services. That's basically the state match on Medicare, or excuse me, Medicaid, uh, and some DSS programs. So most of that money, that 17%, is going back to your local community. So what I like to tell the members of the General Assembly, or show the members of the General Assembly, while there's a lot of debate about all that money coming to Columbia, at least 57, probably closer to 60% or better, is actually going back to the local communities. It doesn't really all stay in Columbia. Local government fund, uh, this just kind of shows you the history. The blue line represents the um, historical formula and the bars represent the actual level of funding. And I know the counties and cities work to kind of update or, or, or get the formula back in line, so to speak, after the Great Recession. Uh, you see that difference there uh, going forward. So there's a new formula. Uh, it's been funded now, I guess, for this year. It couldn't get funded last year with the recession, but I think there may be back on a new track here to start tying the local government funds back to a similar growth in the state budget. But starting to transition to the census, this is something you need to be aware of. The, the aid to subdivision 
is, is allocated on the most recent official census. We do not have the most official recent census available yet. We do have estimates. And because not all, all counties grew at the same rate, some counties are going to get more money or a bigger share of the pie going forward, uh, and some are going to get less. Basically, if your county did not grow as fast as the state average, excuse me, if your county grew faster than the state average, your county's going to get more state aid. That You're going to get a larger share of that pie. If your county grew less than the state, than the state average, that, their portion of the pie is going to decrease. Same thing for the municipalities, and that's the next graph. But just to illustrate with you, or illustrate for you, that with the change in the census here, we've got Horry County. When you, when you divvy up the new pot because of the change in population, Horry County is going to pick up almost $2 million more. Well, the pot hasn't changed, so where's that coming from? That's coming from the counties on the right. So we've got Orangeburg, uh, Orangeburg, Florence, Sumter, Richland, Darlington, Williamsburg. We've got a handful of counties that grew faster than state average. They're going to get more money. And we've got a lot of counties that grew faster or even declined than the state average. They're going to lose money. Uh, out of the, their shares is just shifting. We have a similar effect with municipalities. And I'm sorry, I couldn't, couldn't get all... 271, 270 municipalities on one graph here. But we kind of summarized this for you. Uh, excuse me, we've got 55 municipalities that we think are going to gain more money because of the new census. And that means that the remaining 216 municipalities, you're probably going to get a smaller share of the pot coming forward. Now, what's tough about, what's even tougher about this is normally the census is released in April. And so you have time before the fiscal year begins to prepare for that. In this case, with the delay of the census, those numbers are going to be released on September 30th. And I haven't confirmed with the state treasurer, but their practice has been as soon as those new census numbers come out, they start allocating on that new basis. So your October checks may be different. And you, don't have, you haven't had enough time to prepare for that or anticipate that going forward. But that's something to be, be concerned about or start watching when the new census comes out. Um, I want to switch over. How am I doing on time? Okay, cool. All right. We're going to talk about census and redistricting. This is the fun stuff. All right. Um, so... Our office, we do the official, we maintain the official precinct maps with official contact with the census. We work with this. It's not a once in a decade thing. It's, it's a yearly thing that we work with. But this is starting to show some of those changes. These are the estimated population changes. The, again, these are not the actual census data, but this is the population change by census tract. The darker the blue, the bigger the growth. The lighter blues are a decline. And you see there's been a significant shift, or what we believe is going to be a significant shift in population. The coastal counties, uh, a lot of those areas have grown pretty fast, or have exceeded growth. Uh, the I-85 corridor had a lot of growth. That Charlotte, uh, Rock Hill area, uh, through Greenville, Spartanburg, and Anderson, a lot of growth in that area. And a little bit of growth in the Midlands, but look at that light blue. Those are declining populations. 
So when you think on a state level, when the state starts thinking about redistricting, the state's population is increased. So every House district and every Senate has to have more people in it. If you take five million people and divide it by 124 House members, that's a higher average than the four million population from 10 years ago divided by 124. So you got areas there in the darker blue that they're gonna to have to give up, probably gonna to have to give up population. Uh, they're gonna be able to shed that population. But those areas that are in the uh, lighter areas are a little bit trouble because you've got to get more people, but the only way to get more people is to reach out to, your, to the adjoining areas. Well, that's gonna be somewhat of a conflict and a balance. This is a big picture view of the same thing that a lot of you will be experiencing on your uh, cities. Some parts of your cities are growing faster. Some may not be growing enough. Some may have declined. So we're having to wait on the actual census data to see who the winners and losers are, so to speak. And that's where the basis of redistricting begins is what areas are growing. And certainly you've had annexations, or at least most of you have in, in cities. So getting, getting that data and seeing who has to balance out to, to equal that population is going to be is, is the first step here. Just to show you a little few other things, working age population going forward. Similar pattern, our working age population, when you think about economic development, where are your workers coming from? Higher concentration in some parts of the state than others. Again, a lot of the um, south of I-20, so to speak, uh, between I-20 I and I-95, I guess, uh, we've got a lot of areas that are losing uh, population in that working age. 65 and older looks a little bit much different, doesn't it? Um, a lot of areas of the state, we're just growing older. Uh, we have more people coming in, more retirees going in, but you see that. And that'll make a difference also uh, you know, in your local elections. Uh, as older people come in and move in, that's creating another dynamic within your, within your communities. So, a couple of points on redistricting. Uh, we're a little bothered that redistricting has gotten delayed. We hope there are no further delays. Alabama did sue, and South Carolina joined that suit of the way the census was doing redistricting. Uh, that has been dismissed, but that's not to say it got dis for those of you who are attorneys, it was basically a question of ripeness. Um, that's not to say Alabama may not decide to sue again after the actual numbers are released. Um, so we're waiting to see, uh, even though we hope to get the numbers here next month or some preliminary numbers, that's not definite. And, and who knows what's going to happen. There's another thing the census is doing that you need to be aware of. It's called um, statistical noise. In the past, the census has already ca always counted. At this address, there's one person. At, it, at this address, is two people. Or this address, it's three people. And there's so many whites, so many blacks, so many Hispanics, and so age group. Because of the advances in technology, the census is concerned about when they release that data, people may be able to take the census data and combine it with other da data to really identify who these people are and their income levels and, and things like that. To prevent that, or a way to, to protect that data from abuse, the census is doing something they're calling adding statistical noise, which basically they're putting fake data into the census count to help distort anybody's ability 
to use the census data and tie it to other data sources. On a statewide level, that's not very meaningful. But when they start adding fake data in at the county level, and especially at the city level, it's going to make redistricting a little bit harder. It may show that you have a, uh, a certain block group here that you may need to, to look for minorities to make sure you're getting the right, the right formulas in place. In reality, we don't know if that's real data or fake data. So as a, as a mathematical person and person working with this, I don't like that concept what the census is doing. Um, I understand why, but it's gonna, it's gonna make your jobs and our jobs a little bit more difficult. How do we know we've redistricted properly when we know there's fake data in those cells? That's just the reality of what we have, but it will be make our process a little bit challenging and you need to be aware of it that as you redistrict, we may do it as best we can, but once you get the voting results at the other end, if there's something different, who really knows? So, um, some of you I know have talked about releasing, uh, excuse me, delaying your, your redistricting proposals, uh, and that is a local decision. Uh, with the help of uh, municipal association, you know, we're able to find one code, or one uh, court case that says it wasn't a hard, basically a hard line that you had to redistrict as soon as the census comes out. Uh, you don't really have to postpone or delay your elections uh, to try to meet that time frame, as so long as you have a reasonable time frame to do that. But that's one case, and that was a uh, district court case, and we'll see where it goes. But I know that's been an issue that y'all have. Um, if you're not familiar with redistricting, the data you will get will we'll be able to map it and show it like this, that the census breaks out the, the data in, in what we call blocks. And in the state of South Carolina, the state of South Carolina is divided up into 180-some thousand blocks. And we take those blocks and start grouping those blocks together to form your districts. Um, and in those blocks, it has information about number of people, number of whites, number of blacks, number of Hispanics, number of... Um, Asians, uh, voting age population, so all these statistics we have to work through, we get a summary here. But you will see that uh, is when you start grouping those blocks together. One of the key principles of redistricting is one person, one vote, and that's the 14th Amendment. And that basically is the reason why we have to redistrict. And, and it's very simple. If you don't redistrict and you get elected by a that has a population of 100 people and your council mate gets elected but there are 200 people in his district, those people, it takes 200 people to elect him and 100 people to elect you. Those 200 people, their votes count half as much as, as the ones that elect you or your votes are worth, or one vote in your district is worth twice as much as the other. Uh, and that's the whole principle, you've got to redistrict to make the population as even as possible. It does not have to be one-to-one. -one. Uh, the federal courts have given us a guideline. Uh, there's a threshold, but even if you're within that threshold, you've got to have substantial reasons to, to justify that. It's not a free pass to say as long as we're within 10% uh, to do that. So that'll be a key concept there. The first part of redistricting is you've got to equalize the population as much as possible. Um, racial gerrymandering has been an issue. 
And again, that's been found in violation of the 14th Amendment, and this starts a balancing test. The 14th Amendment says you cannot make race the predominant factor in redistricting, period. Uh, this is what happened in a couple of uh, states when they did their congressional districts. These were districts that, were, that was determined to be racial gerrymandering where the districts were drawn entirely based upon race. And you see by the odd shape of that, and we'll talk about compactness a little bit here, but these were two states that got ruled unconstitutional. One's, uh, I think that's North Carolina on the left and that's Florida on the right. But you see, that was, that's examples of racial gerrymandering. Our congressional districts look great compared to that. We do a pretty good job here in South Carolina. But even though you cannot use race as a predominant factor, you can't ignore it either. But the, the Voting Rights Act, Section 2, says you have to protect the interest of the racial minority groups. So you can't use the race too much, but you can't ignore it. You've got to take it into account to make sure the racial groups are represented. How do we do that? There's a test based on the Supreme Court decision, Thornberry versus Jingles. And these are a lot of statistical analysis that, 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 that we just have to go through now. And we have to show first that the minority group must be large and geographically compact to be a majority of the population. In other words, if we lived in an ideal world and if 40% if of your county is African-American and if every fourth house was African-American, there's no way you could draw a district because it wouldn't be compact enough. It wouldn't be that. But where you have those pockets where the African-American or your minority population is compact enough, you have to recognize that using some statistical models to see what's going on to make sure you protect the interest of those voting minorities. Uh, but it's a three-part test. So first, is it geographically compact enough? Um, and then the majority groups must be politically, politically cohesive. That means that they kind of vote for the same preferred candidate. Uh, at this conference we went to, it was very interesting uh, to learn. We had, we had representatives from the NAACP, the Asian American, the Mexican American, and the Native American groups. Uh, and everybody said that you know, the African American groups are probably a little bit more politically cohesive. Uh, Mexican American groups, excuse me, I should say, it's called Mexican American, but they represent Hispanic groups. Hispanic population are not as cohesive. You know, a Mexican uh, 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 heritage is different than Cuban, different than Guatemalan, different than South America. They're different, and those are what the statistics kind of help lead us to conclude. Asian populations are totally different as well. Um, we don't, um, you know, uh, how, how a Japanese descendant versus a, a Pacific Islander versus a Korean versus a Chinese, all those are different. So what we were warned is you can't, you can't just assume a lot about um, or make too many assumptions on the racial groups. You have to look at the voting patterns. We have to look at primaries. We have to look at election results to kind of determine that. And there are statistics that we do that. And then also we have to see is there, well, how does crossover voting? Is there block voting by the majority population to deny the minority population that fair chance at representation. So a lot of statistics that have to be go, gone, we have to go through 
to make sure that the Voting Rights uh, Act and the requirements of protecting the, the voting interests of the, the, the racial minorities are in there. Now, before, and these are factors, the one person, one vote, the changes in this voting analysis, these are factors that have to be shared with you and discussed before that first redistricting plan is adopted. This is a big change from last year. And again, at this conference, we had attorneys that represented Republicans, we had attorneys that represented Democrats, we had attorneys that represented all four of these racial groups, and they all said the same thing. You have to do this work in advance, you need to disclose it, and you need to talk about your priorities in public before you draw that first plan. It needs to be as transparent as possible, it needs to be open. And what our job is when we help those cities and counties we're working with you, we'll lay out all these factors and we'll help you decide, or excuse me, we'll help show you where you have some, what, where kind of the bare minimum are and maybe where you have some areas or where you have some discretion. The bottom line is it's your plan. You have to be able to defend that. And the more education that you share with your public, the more things you consider and discuss in advance just makes life easier if in the event you get sued. Now, I know people may not like the plan. You're not going to get 100 support, 100% of the community. You may get 80%. Whether or not people have the resources or want the challenge or think there's enough is a whole different issue. But we've got to be a lot more transparent now. There's got to be a lot more statistics. This outline, what I've shared with you, is the same thing that everybody at this conference has shared, what they're telling the states. Because we don't have preclearance especially, the focus has shifted, and there's got to be a lot more information and a lot more decision up front. Um, one of the key areas that you have to work, some of the things we're going to point out, again, contiguousness, your district have to touch. Um, you know, I've heard people say, well, you know, I want my district, but I want you to jump across uh, my adjoining district because my son lives over here. Well, no, your districts have to touch. Uh, you, can't, you can't have non-contiguous, non-touching parts of your district. Uh, the way it looks, the compactness, they should be able to pass an eye test. And those graphs, I or the, those districts I showed you on the racial gerrymandering, they did not pass the compactness test. Um, constituent consistency. It is perfectly acceptable to try to maintain the core of your district. Um, but we have to look at these other guidelines too. We have to look at the, vote, the Voting Rights Act and one person, one vote. But it's perfectly acceptable to try to maintain the core of your district, and that's important for you to decide what is that core. If you have to pick up um, district, excuse me, if you have to add population, that may be a little bit easier. If you have to give up population, then you have a little bit more of a say-so on where we're gonna give up this population, given that we've got to balance it with these, these uh, one person, one vote in the Voting Rights Act. Communities of interest is a big area. Uh, if when you're drawing a district now, you can take into account a communities of interest. For example, it may be that a local school zone may be a community of interest, and you don't want the people in that school zone uh, split between you and a member. It could be a neighborhood. It could be a similar uh, uh, economic status group. Uh, but whatever it is, you have to make those decisions up front. Um, one of the examples that was given to us 
uh, from the, one of the Asian American groups, or the Asian American group, it talked about even, even in, a, in their area, they had a very compact Asian community which was big enough for at least one district. But that local government split that neighborhood up into four different districts. So they were not a uh, strong enough minority to affect any one of those, but yet if they had been drawn properly in their opinion, they could have represented a group. But these are the type of decisions um, you need to make up front. So when your plan is a, when, so when you develop your plan, it's up front that you've been transparent and say, these are the objectives we want to cover, the, we want to accomplish, and here's the result. Don't give the result and try to back into it. That's gonna just set you up for a bad lawsuit. And then one of the main things here is voting precincts. Uh, we try not to split voting precincts. That just pro causes too much problems at the local level. Sometimes it's necessary just because of the way the census and the districts are and the size of the districts. But you can understand if you're a voter um, or the people running your, your, your precincts, you know, if you go into the precinct and you can all vote for one of two candidates, that's great. But if they have to start dividing that precinct and say, well, if you live in this part of the precinct, then here's a ballot for you to vote between A and B. And if you live on this side of the precinct, then you live, I uh, have to vote for C and D. We try to avoid that uh, as much as possible. It's not always done, but that's something you need, need to consider. So again, to kind of conclu conclude this, um, you need to educate yourself and educate the public and help dealing with the community group, especially if you have very active ones, to kind of help show them the lay of the land. What do the facts show? What is the data out there? What are the key principles that you have to take into account for the legal requirements? And then you can start working on a plan and addressing issues. Again, it is much better to do this in advance than trying to defend it later going forward. Um, you need some type of professional to help. Our office is there to help you. Uh, a lot of you use other professionals and that's fine. Uh, some may have people on staff to help you do that. Um, especially with the, with the cities, make sure you've got your, 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 your uh, um, annexations. Make sure your maps are up to date. And please don't adopt a redistricting plan at the top of the agenda and at the bottom of the agenda, add a thousand new st uh, citizens to your, um, to your district and just throw everything out of whack. Just be mindful of your annexation process. So when you pass a plan based on a population, you're not changing that very soon thereafter. Um, it takes you two ordinances here. It takes you, excuse me, two readings, one ordinance, excuse me, to do that. Um, Make sure uh, you do a public hearing so people have a chance to comment before you get started. Uh, and then finally, um, this is not an end of the process, it's only the next step of the process. Your local elections offices need this information. You've got to provide them the new map so candidates know when to file. That takes time. Uh, you've got to have time to change voter registration cards. And that's just a matter depending on the size of your city and your sophistication. Some may be able to do it sooner than others. But you really can't start the election process until you get the map drawn so people know where to file to run with. Or, or, where, or excuse me, where to, where, to, yeah, where to file if they want to run. Um, so that being said, I'll quote another economist. Um, at least the internet's right. Uh, Lionel Richie studied economics at Tuskegee. 
Uh, and his quote, well, my friends, the time has come to raise the roof and have some fun, throw away the work to be done. Well, based on my floor, y'all started raising the roof last night. So, um, so uh, I know this is the last speaker, and I don't know if I'm before lunch, before fun, but thank you, and I'll be glad to answer any questions you may have. Thank you. Thank you.